0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. Today you're about to listen to one of our specials, the broadcasting of live events that we hosted here in Austin. In this case, it is a very special one or more than one. It's a part of a series. In late November, as you might already know, the Austin Institute hosted journalist and author Sora Amari. While with us, Amari gave a talk at the University Catholic Center where he talked about his personal story, his journey to the faith and the dangers of our contemporary culture and its wokeism with Father Jonathan Rea. On the following day, he discussed three chapters of his latest book, The Unbroken Thread, with three of our scholars and senior fellows, Professor Jay Budziszewski, Professor Robert Koons, and Professor Margaret Nehrs. We are now releasing those conversations on our podcast, and you can find them on our YouTube channel, too. As you enjoy the conversations, remember that all these events are possible thanks to your generous donations. Today, you're about to listen to the first episode of the series, Tradition Amid Chaos, An Evening with Surab Omari.
1: Thank you again for being with us, Surab. Uh, I'm really excited to your story, your uh, conversion story, really is uh, is fascinating in so many respects. So I wanted to start with that, some elements of that, uh, if we could. So. I was fascinated, you know, of course, you, you grew up in um, Iran and under the, um, that kind of uh, particular brand of, of Islam. And um, you you have this description of the way that you became an atheist um, as a, how old were you? Was that? 12, 13. Yeah, 12, 13 years old. This idea of, of cursing God and realizing that absolutely nothing happened mm-hmm. uh, and how that, um, from there you became an atheist. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about kind of um, the role of the religion that you grew up with in, in that particular brand and that um, turn to atheism. You kind of link the two in the in the book.
2: Yeah, um, well, thank you again, Father, for, yeah. for hosting this conversation. Thank you to Mariana for taking the initiative and the Austin Institute as well. Thank you all for being here. Um, so I grew up um, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, my Even my birthday we've had this kind of fortuitous connection to the uh, to the new, then new regime because I was born exactly six years to the day that the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his Parisian exile to herald the uh, Islamic Republic and, and toppled the Shah. And um, I remember that even that was a kind of a, a source of a joke in our family because my family for the most part was very secular, my wider family, and um, uh, so when we were at parties, you know, and I recount this in the book, um, in family reunions I had this uh, relative who had been a, a, a high-ranking police officer under the Shah. Mm-hmm. And he would always ask me, you know, when were you born, Saurabh? And I would always say, you know, February 1st. And he knew that that was my birthday and I knew mm-hmm. that he knew, but I always played along anyway. And he would hold his nose and say, you know, Piff piff! You brought the Imam with you, meaning Khomeini. Mm-hmm. That was the kind of milieu that I was, um, that I grew up in. Um, my own immediate family was more complicated. They had mm-hmm. supported the the revolution, um, not out of Islamist f- fervor, but um, because they sought, in their minds, something like m- democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, my, or for my grandfather, uh, it was Persian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And they had legitimate grievances against the former regime, um, but at any rate, nearly everyone had come to instantly regret it. So what that meant was that I constantly grew up in this world um, between a, a world that was betwi- divided between two worlds. Mm-hmm. One was the world you know behind our closed doors, where you know alcohol flowed freely, even if sometimes it was like moonshine and it was made with isopropyl alcohol that isn't meant for. <laughs> And we, surrounded by Western books and movies and ideas, sure. and then the world outside, which was, you know, a, a, a genuine theocracy ruled mm-hmm. by clerics, um, and uh, you know that I, I liked the, the world indoors better. Bottom line, I, I liked Western things, even the Western things in their kind of lowbrow Western things like Hollywood cinema or whatever, and I just preferred that. I, I th- there was there was you know the the individual was valued as an individual in the Western imagination. Whereas, you know, for in the Iranian imagination, the, the model boy was this boy, who, actually true story, who during the Iran-Iraq war had strapped grenades around himself and dashed under enemy tanks. Mm-hmm. And that's how you earned your spot on like the murals around the city was by doing that, this kind of act of self-negation. No. Like you can't blame me for preferring Luke Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, at least at that age. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, then, and then came the declaration of atheism. You know, we, we were in the north of Iran, a lot of Iranians vacation, a lot of Tehran, the you know, people who live in the capital go to the north, to the Caspian Sea, you know, geography, pop quizzes, you know, it's actually not a sea, it's a lake. I don't know why it's called a sea, <laughs> but it's just a big lake. So they said, they called it a, a sea. Um, and, and so we went there and, you know, we, had, we were harassed about like alcohol, um, on the beach by the morality police, mm-hmm. whom we could then pay off. Sure, you know they didn't really, they didn't do do anything to us, um, and so all the kind of hypocrisies of the of the Islamic Republic. So I thought, okay, yeah, let's try it out. If there is a God, you know, something something will happen. I'll get swallowed up by demonic beings, and mm-hmm. take in, and nothing like that happened. Um, but you know, as I write in the book, you know, there were there were demons, and I was swallowed up, but not quite in that cartoonish fashion.
1: Yeah. And so you kind of then trace the sort of slow um, entering more and more into, into that world and feeling um, sort of this, this darkness that eventually, it took a while to realize was kind of surrounding you. Yeah. Right. Um, <coughs> so yeah, walk us through that. You come to uh, America yeah. on the, this visa program, right?
2: Yes, um, the, the, the family preference visa program, AKA chain migration, mm-hmm. um, got us our green cards and I, I always tell this story, and if if you've heard other talks, I apologize, but I have to repeat it because, so having that mindset of what is America, to mm-hmm. me America meant secularity, it meant individualism, um, it meant a kind of decadent Manhattan of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And that's what I imagined, that's what I wanted, like I wanted to, that, w- that was where I belonged. So when we finally got our green cards, I was very happy, you know, we boarded this KLM flight and the first leg took us to Amsterdam okay whatever then we took another flight and then you watch the flight path right like it's at the projected at the end of the plane and we went right over where I knew Manhattan would be and <laughs> landed somewhere called Minneapolis st. Paul but right. Right. Well, we didn't stop there we then took another flight and it landed in a place called Salt Lake City Utah yeah. And you have no sense of like the geography of the United States sure. you know you just think it's and, and and then we didn't stop there. Then my uncle, who had helped us get the green card, picked us up, you know, in a, in a truck and took us to a town called Eden, Utah. Mm-hmm. And as we drove in, you know, you saw the sign that said POOP 608, you know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so this is yeah. not like the America had been promised. Sure. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I almost instantly shifted my oppositional energies away from the Ayatollahs in the old country to toward what in a thin, weird way remained of America's uh, Judeo-Christian ethic in the late 1990s in a place like Eden, Utah, or Northern Utah more generally. And if I had rejected the Shiite Islam of my heritage with all its kind of rich iconography and all its tradition of commentaries on, on Plato and Aristotle, I sure as hell was not going to believe in a religion that said that you know, the ancient Israelites had actually come to America, attempted to convert the natives, failed, but left records of their travails on stone tablets, which then some guy in you know upstate New York discovered and decoded using magic glasses. Like that's an abominably <laughs> weird religion. <laughs> so you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so yeah, I mean I mean the rest of the story becomes very American and loses its, its exotic quality because then, you know, I, I go through the whole uh, I trace the whole journey of, 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 of at least of one strand of Western philosophy. I discover sure. Nietzsche.
1: Kind of from Nietzsche to
2: God to, is dead. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you do with God is dead? A lot of Nietzsche's kind of heirs in the twentieth century had become Marxists. So I became a Marxist. Whatever that meant in Northern Utah, you know, it was like just a. <laughs> A guy running his, you know, socialist website from his mom's dank basement, sure. you know, whatever. And then eventually going to Seattle where this group had its more serious, like, group of skill and base at the University of Washington. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: And then to, yeah, and to communism from sure. Nietzsche to to, uh, to communism to Marxism, yeah. Not, not uncommon. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So before we kind of go there, um, you know, it seems... Sort of a, a beautiful piece of the Lord's providence that, as you said, of all of the kind of strangeness of some of the tenets of Mormon theology, is your Mormon roommates yeah. uh, and the Bible that was left laying out that right. was, led you to this encounter with the Lord, right? In reading Matthew's Passion. Can yes. you talk about that a little bit?
2: Um, yes, but in order for that to make sense, we have to go back a little bit to my sure. childhood in Iran. Um, when I was a boy, obviously, I had the kind of simple faith of children where you think there's a bearded man um, in the upper regions of the heavens who, if you kind of close your eyes and talk to him, he'll get you that Lego set or whatever. Um, <laughs> so I had that kind of faith. But then as I grew older and I took you know, Islamic education courses um, in in Iran, I was introduced to the Shiite religion's martyrology mm-hmm. right, of the... And I won't get into the, what divides Shiites and Sunnis. It's complicated. But ultimately, it, it comes down to who should succeed the prophet Muhammad. Um, and um, the Shiites obviously believe that it should be his, his family, his, his blood descendants, and the Sunnis do not. And those blood descendants, one after another, are, are killed by the Sunni mm-hmm. caliphs. Um, and it's those descendants of Muhammad whom whom Shiites revere, and as I was losing my faith, like in that episode that I just described, at the same time I still found the idea of kind of the ultimate Shiite martyr figure, which is Hussein ibn Ali. Um, his story I found strangely moving, mm-hmm. and his story is that he's you know he's. He's isolated in the desert you know they, they've told him if he comes from arabia to to Kufa in Iraq, he can lead an uprising against the the caliph, but little you know he did not know in fact or actually let me correct that he knew but nevertheless took the journey that that uprising had already been put down, so that the caliph's army surrounded him with just seventy two warriors and and their retinue of women and children mm-hmm. and he you know he tells his that, disciples that you can leave me if you want, and none do. And they're all massacred, um, including the children. And this idea of someone laying down his life for his friends, mm-hmm. I found incredibly moving at, at a kind of romantic or aesthetic level, sure. um, even after I had become an unbeliever. Now, <laughs> fast forward back to where we were in the story. Um, I had Mormon roommates at, at, at one point, and they, and left their King James Bible around. And we would leave books as kind of messages to each other. And <laughs> right. I would like do like William S. Burroughs to kind of shock their Mormon sensibilities. And I think they deliberately also left the Bible like in a kind of trade, but anyway. <laughs> so I picked up the book, and I went to the New Testament because it was the new one. I was like, why would you read the old one? <laughs> <laughs> Everything new is better, right? This is, yeah, this is the late, if, if you pick up a book, and there's one that's called old, one called new, of course sure. this one will be updated. Of course. Um, <laughs> so, I, so I went to the New Testament, and I read in one sitting um, uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, and I I re- recovered that same sense of, mm. of yearning for sacrifice. Yeah. Um, that I had first encountered, now I would say in a kind of echo or shadow Mm -hmm. of our Lord's passion in in the story of Hussein. Um, The idea, which I did not believe because I didn't think there was a God, and it was fantastical to believe that God would become man, of course, whatever, but just as narrative, the idea that God himself would condescend Mm -hmm. to become one of his creatures and then allow them to scourge him and spit on his face and sort of, was very moving, and I thought this is very touching. Um, and it stayed with me, it was sort of seared into my, somewhere in my mind.
3: Sure,
1: Yeah. and f- kind of flies in the face of, of Nietzsche, right?
2: It's the exact opposite. It's, a, it's an absolute reversal, yeah. Yeah. yeah the great of re- course, R- Nietzsche has great contempt for that. Sure. He says this is the slave morality. Even your god is a weak, kind of weakling. Yeah, right?
1: it's a great reversal. So we'll come back to that with, uh, when you pick up Benedict, but, um, So you transferred from Utah State to uh, University of Washington in Seattle. Yeah. Um, I like what you say about um, kind of this disillusionment of realizing, you say it was obvious that the full-time socialist life was possible only for the children of the upper middle class. This kind of just the elitism, right? Um, And you talk about the obsessive mono thought and claims of omniscience that sort of ultimately was just was just repellent and was off-putting, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk about kind of your move from that towards more of the postmodernism, critical theory and all of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I have to say, first of all, I mean, th- there's, this is me talking in 2021 and not who I was then. Um, we have to be clear, there is value in, for example, saying as Marx does, or as Marxists do that like, okay, XYZ cultural phenomenon sure. is happening. How, what material conditions is it based on,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? And that so that insight that, you know, a lot of what we do and whatever what we profess um, can be uh, configured or contoured by how we arrange our economy or so forth like, is, is um, um, useful, even for, for a Christian, I would sure. argue. Um, now, having said that, what I, what I lost in losing my uh, simple Marxist faith was the kind of messianic dimension of, mm-hmm. of, of history and having a clear direction in which, uh, in, out of the struggle of the classes, there will emerge this kind of apocalyptic event of the revolution, which mm-hmm. then um, settles all injustices, sets all injustices right, and, and wipes, you know, history itself will wipe every tear. That is the kind of part of the Marxist stuff that is genuinely loony and, 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 and you can also justify any number of things, any abominable things, that's by true. telling yourself that your history is on your side mm-hmm. and this is, the history has, just has to go this way through, through millions of bodies of human beings who stood in the way of actually existing Marxist regimes. So that's what I lost. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I guess I had this mentality that, okay, Marx had somehow been overcome by something newer. Mm-hmm. And it's it's critical theory. It's sure. it's the um, turn, you place it at different points, but roughly speaking, after World War II and after Soviet Union becomes more and more discredited in, in, in the West, it becomes very, very hard to apologize for the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, for, for a lot of intellectuals. They then say, And it turns out a lot of of Western working classes don't want communism. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, The project shifts to um, looking at how language itself um, Mm -hmm. structures oppression, and and more and more about identity, up to basically today. Um, And so yeah, I mean, I would just thought well well, that's that again with that mentality which I had for much of my teens and early twenties that what came later must be right. Sure. So Marx had been overcome by this new set of thinkers who now pay more attention mm-hmm. to to language, to identity, to sexuality and gender and so right. forth. So yeah. that must be.
1: And the kind of placing of the blame always outside of myself, right? right which you talk about sort of uh, was perfectly convenient for a hedonistic life as a college student on a modern college campus. Right. right. But it's always kind of someone else's fault. And so I can, you know, Irresponsibility and surrender to the appetites yep. was sort of, that followed naturally, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, but in that already there was sort of, in the moments of misery, the sort of uh, hitting towards the bottom bottom of the barrel, mm-hmm. there are moments you talk of, of beginning to let God in or beginning to let him knock, mm-hmm. knock at the door, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have this experience with, uh, after graduation doing Teach for America, yeah. right? and this uh encounter with your colleague Yossi and this this kind of uncompromising commitment or loyalty that he has to the truth um and in the importance of character and virtue in education kind of regardless of all of the the other circumstances um and this conviction that that by comparison with him kind of morally you you came up short mm-hmm. right um can you talk about the the role that that played kind of eventually you named conscience as one of the things that led to your conversion yes christianity
2: that that's this is the texas episode yeah of my, there you of go. my memoir and that's right. the first time i'm talking about my memoir in the lone star state there we go. um I, I i signed up to do teach for america mainly because i had kind of nothing quite to do you know i was like sure. do i don't want to go straight to grad school so okay there's this thing they'll send you somewhere i'll sign up and my placement took me to 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 Brownsville,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> and I also checked a box saying that you know I would be a special education teacher. I would be prepared to do that. Like, I have no idea. <laughs> that is <laughs> an enormous kind of, res- and also sure. it, it, there's. In retrospect, it's pretty crazy that Teach for America would be like, yeah, okay, you've you've been studying Hegel, go deal with kids with autism. You know, <laughs> sure. <laughs>
1: Not a natural
2: jump um, it, not a natural jump, but yeah, it also demanded a lot of you um, and th- i was I, I roomed with a guy who was also in Teach for America, he was israeli American, mm-hmm. um, and um, we um, taught at the same school as well. He was an English teacher, I was a special education teacher, and he was very, very committed to the job, like he would mm-hmm get up at 4.30 in the morning, by five he was in his classroom lesson planning. You know, every day he had a very clear sense of what he's, his kids needed to learn and he would assess them rigorously and would stay hours afterward, whereas I you know, was kind of just floating through. I would show up at the, kind of, when I was absolutely required and I would leave. Um, now, paradoxically, or not paradoxically, but ironically, the um, school administration loved me. Mm. And and had initially come to disdain my friend, and the reason was that, as I learned in an American public school system, a teacher can get away with a lot by just talking a big game in the faculty meeting. You could just sort of be like, "Yes, these ch- children need more adaptive and instructional technology," <laughs> and, and the and the principal will sort of be like, "Oh man, that kid, that, sure. that kid is my star." Whereas yeah. my friend, who is actually doing a a lot, was running into resistance because he would not just automatically pass kids. They had had to show they'd learn. And this was not pleasant for the parents and for the the administration, but he stood his ground and over time, he uh, earned this enormous respect from Mm. the kids, from the parents, from other teachers, from the administration. And watching that process unfold, because early on I would tell him, because I he was bound for harvard law school mm-hmm. so he'd gotten a deferral to do teach for america and i would say like i would say why would you jeopardize that just pass mm-hmm. them who who freaking cares like and he would say no that would be a lie
3: mm-hmm. and
2: his insistence on that point was a kind of moral mi- milestone for me yeah. and i became aware of my own conscience like yeah. that be- because i would there was this inner voice that was already telling me that like that's a better man, Mm -hmm. objectively speaking. Maybe not just as a professional, but as a man uh, or as a human being. And if there is this sense that someone is better in some respects, then there must be some measure, some universal gauge Mm -hmm. against which people can get um, judged. And if such a measure exists, how did it come into being? And how is it that I'm interiorly aware of some objective norm that seems to be built into human affairs. So I didn't become a believer right then and there, but those questions would, you could see how it could easily lead to um, essentially a kind of natural theology or a a conclusion that there must be a God who rules this moral order. Sure. And has created it.
1: Sure. So you have then, you have an experience with, initial experience with the mass, thank you. And and uh, and this strange experience of of seeing a portrait of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who was reigning at the time, and being moved to tears, right? Mm -hmm. And just this this desire for what you name is like a desire for authority, yeah, and a hunger for authority in your soul. Um, And then yeah, a little while later after you're already uh, uh, law school, and then and then a journalist, and moved to New York, and then to London, um, this. Benedict comes up again, right? Um, mm-hmm. You talk about the experience of reading uh, the account of the fall in Genesis, mm-hmm. and then Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. uh, Ratzinger's, uh, I guess the first uh, one at that time. In that truly Probably. Um, <clears throat> you name it as the truest, it resonated interiorly as the truest account of God and man and the relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, experience? I mean, it's um. Uh, it's an echo of Chesterton's famous line that, that the fall is only the only aspect of divine revelation for which we have empirical empirically right.
1: verifiable. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I,
2: um, I mean, I certainly had had seen that both in myself and in, in the human world around me, um, and so I, you know, at this point, I was open enough to think, okay, what does the Bible actually say, mm-hmm. and I should I should read it for myself. So I began reading the Torah in this beautiful translation by by Robert Alter. At the time he had only done the Torah, but now he's done the entire Hebrew Bible. And um, I remember in Genesis um, encountering, um, especially the the bit when um, Cain kills Abel, Mm -hmm. and he hears this voice, um, what have you done? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. First of all, I mean, the literary beauty of that. But setting that aside, that's a voice that I had constantly heard up mm-hmm. to that point in my life. At various points, when you, yeah. you feel like you come up short, there is this voice that says, what have you done? What have you done? Yeah. Um, and then simultaneously, I began to read Jesus of Nazareth, especially that the, the first volume. Mm-hmm. And Pope Benedict connects the whole story of the Bible such that you see that across the two testaments, or across mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible and the, and the New Testament, there is this one narrative arc of God drawing, disclosing ever more of himself until shockingly, he He discloses himself in the form of a, of a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so uh, all this was leading me, I mean, the, the conclusion in the book are, I spend more time in, but was leading me to, at, at the level of, of the intellect, I was coming along yeah. and that it is, it is reasonable to to believe, and and that um, you know I don't necessarily have to take everything in, in Genesis literally, um, but that it is nevertheless true. It's a it's a very true account of this brokenness that seems to be inside me and which I can't otherwise repair. Sure. Yeah.
1: Which was something that you spend the entire I guess the penultimate chapter talking about your experience with these Afghan smugglers. You're kind of embedded as a journalist there. Uh, in Istanbul, and just this, this visceral uh, experience of just evil and depravity, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you talk about it as kind of this reflection exteriorly and materially of your own spiritual state, right? right. Um, so you say the mystery of evil and the reality of the conscience compelled me to assent to the Christian faith.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then there's another experience of the mass.
2: Yes, this is a definitive one.
1: Yeah, talk about that.
2: Sure, so yeah, I mean, I was I was based in London and had moved with with my wife, and um, I had at this point decided that I wanted to become a Christian, um, but I didn't know which kind. Even though so much of my sensibility had already been shaped by Pope Benedict's books and um, these encounters with the mass, I still, you know, it didn't occur to me to just right away become a Catholic, but I had an um, Anglican evangelical friend mm-hmm. who suggested I go to this church um, called Holy Trinity Brompton, which mm-hmm. is in South Kensington, and so that's where I would I would go Sundays. And then on one Sunday I noticed that there's another church right next to Holy Trinity Brompton called the Brompton Oratory, mm-hmm. um, and it's this kind of neo-baroque um, edifice it was very attractive and. It just said, you know, solemn solemn high mass for Sunday, and I walked in right after having already gone to the kind of jamboree of, a, of an evangelical service. And um, that mass, it, it, which is very difficult for me to summarize briefly, I mean, the, I'm, I'm very proud of the, the writing in that chapter, in that book, um, brought it all together, the sort of the grace yeah. of what happens in the altar and the, the kind of Already a kind of Eucharistic hunger, although I wouldn't have described it then in that way of wanting to do what others are doing, this, um, um, of this really visceral material encounter with the, with the divine, um, and wanting that for myself. Uh, and then the authority of the church, sure. its, tradition, its tradition, the beauty of its liturgies, and so forth, so that I decided yeah. to become a Catholic. So I went to, and I like knocked on the door of the oratory house, it's, it's basically yeah. where the priests live. And this kind of wizened old priest opened the door and he said, you know, you know how can I help you? And I said, uh, I want to become a Catholic. And he didn't miss a beat. He just said, very well, I shall instruct you.
1: <laughs> he didn't tell you RCIA starts on Tuesday at 7 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> fill out this form. There's <laughs> No form. Yeah. No, you name it, you name their, the, what, the experience of the mass, order, continuity, tradition, and totality, and confidence. Yes. I like that idea, of, that idea of confidence.
2: Right. Um, of the church uh, being her own proof, not needing anyone validation. This the one institution, continuous, yeah. survived various Roman despots and, and, and Napoleon and Stalin sure. and everyone else and saw them all off that in a way is like that doesn't want you to believe in in God per se I had already come to believe in God but to say that if there is one divine institution on earth it's this one
1: sure yeah, yeah and, the, and the church as the continuation on earth of of the incarnation of
2: the incarnation
1: yeah, yeah which is I think one of the best ways of, of explaining it um kind of, uh, teaching the faith um I this is a bit of a departure but I just I was struck by the phrase Because you mentioned it in that section from Ronald Knox of the description of holiness as a life of gracious fanaticism, Mm -hmm. you talk about that a little bit. I love that. So so, so it's from his book, *Gracious Fanaticism*.
2: It's from his book, um, *The Creed in Slow Motion*, Uh which is just a commentary on the Apostles' Creed, which he delivered um, to a group of Catholic schoolgirls Mm -hmm. who had been evacuated from London during the Blitz and and uh, placed in the countryside. Yeah. And so he was teaching them more or less catechism and was yeah. going through the creed. Um, that makes it, it, it's actually a very sophisticated book and, and with everything with Knox did, it's just really, the prose is just elegant and beautiful. And it's in that context, right? Where um, it's in a context in which nationalist feeling was running high and justifiably because Britain had been unjustly invaded. And um, you know, I mean obviously, Knox says, let's absolutely support the war effort. But he says, but you're Catholic, and you have to, that means you have to always have this um, kind of global horizon as well as a universal horizon. And I think in that context, he said, you should, you should also have, you know, this graciousness about your fanaticism. Mm. You're a fanatic, but, um, but not, a, not a shouty, unpleasant one. Sure, <laughs> sure, a winsome one. Yeah, a winsome one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's beautiful
1: so um then you write uh your second book um and you start out with this this uh description of the martyrdom of saint maximilian colby one one max yeah um and of course the letter is or the whole book is kind of uh and ends with this very beautiful direct letter to your own son max Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that contrast of the perfect freedom that you see in in Maximilian Kolbe and his sacrifice and then your own kind of um nightmare uh that you describe for your son Max.
2: Yeah so The Unbroken Thread is a book I wrote for my my son who's named after Maximilian Kolbe. Mm -hmm. I won't belabor the story I imagine most of you know the story but just very briefly for those who don't um he was a Polish Franciscan friar and in um uh, World War II, he's very active against the Nazis and is therefore arrested and, and sent to Auschwitz. And there, someone escapes from his block, his mm-hmm. prison block, and the Nazis do what they usually do, which is to choose 10 men randomly to die of starvation as collective punishment for the one who, who got away. And Kolbe um, is not selected. he's not one of the ones that's selected, but when he hears one of the condemned men cry out, my wife, my children, he steps forward for the line and, and, and chooses to, to die in place of this person, and horrific death of, mm-hmm. of slow starvation and dehydration. So I, when I read that story, it was about when I was being received into the church as well, and it really stuck with me, and I I wanted to pick the name, actually, Maximilian, as, as for my you know, baptismal name, but I ultimately went with St. Augustine, mm-hmm. and so um, I had to do something <laughs> with Maximilian, so I chose to name my son. <laughs> after him, and so there was that, and this mm-hmm. image of someone achieving, going far beyond natural freedom, mm-hmm. to this, this level of supernatural freedom, yes. this summit of human freedom, to be able to lay down your life in, in place of another, in imitation of, of our Lord, and then I, in the opening of the book, I imagine, okay, w- what about my Max, and I sort of imagine him growing up. And the fear is not that my Max will be like, I don't know, God forbid he'll like succumb to an opioid addiction or you know, just like be an utter layabout in life, but rather that, you know, he'll probably inherit his parents kind of upper middle class status, but rather that he'll become a kind of soulless, purposeless global meritocrat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I describe him first coming back from college and all he talks about with his friends over dinner is is money and how to, how to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, they all are committed to the idea that you should keep your options open and not to be mm-hmm. bound by anything, whether that's a religious vocation or whether that's marriage or anything like that will hinder your true freedom. Yeah. We, we, the goal is always to strive to be um, maximizing your options mm-hmm. and keeping them open. And it, it actually, I, I should mention, I, I, I went to a talk while I was writing this, this part of the book, went to a talk by the prelate of Opus Dei, and mm-hmm. he said, some, one of the young men asked him as, as a question, saying, you know, a lot of my friends have this sense that they shouldn't, they, either they shouldn't get married, they shouldn't go into anything that would kind of commit, commit them mm-hmm. for the long term. The way the prelate uh, responded was very beautiful. He said, well, they're, then they're actually not free. Yes, because they're not actually exercising their freedom. Their freedom always stays in a state of potency. Mm. It's never reduced to act to act. Yeah. And I, that's, that was very that struck me. And by the way, the the future Max that I described, just kind of just striving for career but never committing to anything greater than himself, um, is not some fantastical thing. It's the experience of a lot of my my peers. I'm 36. Um, you know, they're successful or whatever, but they're like on their n- fifth year of touring Europe in, a, in, a, in an RV with like a girlfriend, but they never will quite marry mm-hmm. like after years and years, like, you know, what are you doing? You know? Like either, either marry or don't, but this kind of, this floating yeah. drives me crazy. So, and then um, I compare the two, right? Of, of, of this summit of human freedom and this, this kind of existence which is not deprivation, it's not misery, but it's somehow just f- floating through life, you know? Sure. Uh, and so how do I guard myself, my son, against this, this other outcome, right? How do I, because our culture actually constantly tells him to keep his options open, right. to not to, to just seek his own material well-being. And so I wrote The Unbroken Thread. Yeah, as a
1: yeah so the paradox of, of finding freedom through binding oneself. Yeah. If I, if I can just, if I can quote you to yourself here. You that said, feels good. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you said the Western dream of autonomy and choice without limits is, in fact, a prison. The quest to define ourselves on our own is a kind of El Dorado, driving to madness the many who seek after it. For our best, highest selves to soar, other parts of us must be tied down, enclosed, limited, and bound. Yeah. Tied down, enclosed, limited, and bound. So I mean, that's to
2: our culture. I mean, that's just that's horrible. That's horrible. How would you I, want? That? Even as you say it, it sounds yeah. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, I mean, um, that's a it's a it's it's a thread that runs through sure. the unbroken thread that in each chapter um, poses a question. Um, uh, a, a, one of the twelve questions, each of which our culture says are no longer worth asking, are not relevant to a modern life, have been settled by, you know. Sp- astrophysics and cosmology, mm-hmm. and therefore, you don't need to ask about them in religious or, or even just metaphysical terms, when in fact the questions are still you know, eminently pertinent to a happy and full human life. And not being, I'm not a philosopher or a, or a, or a theologian, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, so I answer each question through the life of one great thinker. Yeah. And each question ultimately takes the same structure, that something that appears to moderns as um, a, a limit, mm-hmm. an obstacle that tradition or nature impose. Um, in retrospect, after we've demolished it, we realize that it was a source of freedom. Sure. So to give like one example, yeah. and this is what the enclosed bound, et cetera mean, it, uh, it, the very clear one is the loss of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. The loss of the American Sabbath, which is a process that's um, only recently came to an end.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The United States had its Sabbatarian dimension going back to tradition, going back to the colonial era, mm-hmm. and not just in, in, in Puritan New England. It, we had a Sabbatarian tradition in, in Virginia, which was supposedly like a more secular colony, and in, in New Amsterdam. And o- over a, a long period of time, it was chipped away at. Mm-hmm. And it was chipped away at in the name of freedom Right, like you should be able to do what you want to do on your weekend. Who cares? Like, you know, if you want to shop or if you want to, if you want to work more, you know, people should be free to do. But in practice, what we find is that it it really isn't freedom for for whom. It's not freedom for the worker. It's not freedom for the family. It's not freedom for the worshipper. It's freedom for Jeff Bezos, Mm -hmm. for him to be able to use algorithmic, you know, human resources scheduling to maximize efficiency regardless of the, the impact it might have, let's say, on a single mother who works in one of his warehouses and doesn't have any sense of regularity in her schedule. Yeah. Or for upper, upper class or middle class people like me, it's, it means kind of this blurring of the line between rest and work so mm-hmm. that we're always by this kind of ghostly blue glow of the, of the iPhone. And I, I, I still, I have this kind of where I wake up at three in the morning and I see like bzz, something buzzes up and you can't resist. Yeah, you know, um, is, I mean, it's, designed it's designed that way, right? it's designed that way and it's, yeah. they use neurologists to make it ever more addictive. But the sure. point is that the, the the boundary that the idea of a Sabbath set on this is work, this is uh, this is rest, and the rest yeah. is valuable, and it helps order your other kind of th- other things that you do. The acquisitiveness, economic competition, those are goods; they're important, but they're, but they have a they they gain a meaning in relation to this other dimension in which you are um, turning toward eternity Um, and that same argument is basically recapitulated through the whole book always that some traditional limit actually turned out to be a source of liberty
1: sure And, and and you pose it as a question there's 12 questions right so I'm curious this this um if you can talk about that decision like um that uh, you say the need to restate the fundamental human dilemmas our contemporaries have forgotten, or would prefer to ignore, um, but to do it in this form of, kind of, if I could paraphrase, sort of, could it be that this thing that we're so sure of as a modern society is actually maybe not the case, and right. this, this, uh, maybe there was a baby that we threw out, you know, with the bathwater. There's something that we've rejected that actually we should have held on to. I, can you talk about this? So why, this idea why, of why questions? Yeah, why um, questions?
2: I'll be honest, in part, it was in conversation with my editor I, at, s- I noticed um, that yeah at, at, um, and the reason was that w- I, I, th- I told him I want to write a book for my son, and I told him about this experience of writing the New York City subway with my son, who was then one one year old, and I noticed like the ads were for OKCupid, okay which is not notorious for these very like, kind of provocative ads and involving like BDSM, polyamory, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I just wondered, you know, what if my son asked like, what is what is this stuff? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And, um, you know, obviously maybe I could have directed attention, his attention elsewhere, I could have lied, whatever, but what I was telling my editor is that, you know, this experience, for me to be able to unpack why it's so unsettling, requires me to ask questions first mm-hmm. because um, how this kind of like utter public obscenity and this vulgarization of sex, how did it came out to be, and how we can begin to critique it, is the result of such dramatic changes in how people think about, about what it means to be human, sure. that in order to unpack it, I have to do a lot of work. And then he suggested, what if you, what if you write a book of questions that aren't asked that poke holes? Yeah. In the worldview that brought us to the point where you see those ads in the New York City subway, right? So that's the genesis of the book.
1: Yeah, it seems to me there's there's something important there. I think in sort of evangelical strategy, right, mm-hmm. of of the idea of poking holes. Yeah. Can we, you know, there's uh, to us maybe looking logically, it seems this is this is a house of cards. It just let me just knock it down because mm-hmm. it's so logically um, inconsistent. Um, but that's not gonna that's not gonna win hearts. Mm-hmm. The idea of, of of asking questions that help the person themselves to sort of begin to poke the holes in it, maybe in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it, does that strike you as a kind of an important evangelical strategy?
2: It does. It yeah. does. Um, another one which is similar that I use is is just the phrase "look around you." Yeah. Right. There's a kind of. This is this gets more political, but there is a tendency to say um, to rationalize mm. and learn to you you see XYZ bad thing in our society and you think well that's an aberration and but then you don't ask a more fundamental question of how it came about. then you move on to the next bad thing sure you say oh that's bad that's troubling that we're doing this, but you don't ask another fundamental question and so that the the subject in this way never connects the dots to say, yeah. well, maybe we need a regime level critique. Sure. And so the way, I mean, uh, one argument I've made is, is just like look around. It's not just one thing. Like right. <laughs> there's like, everything is is um, is in a bad shape. Or just or kind a of a lot the, of things are in a bad shape.
1: Sure. Or you just kind of even look at your own life, right? Like how's the whole kind of right. how's that working for you? Right. Right. Um, yeah. So you have there's there's a a real worry about the way that our country, um, this, this kind of removing of all of the barriers mm-hmm. um, and the, yeah, what we're, what we're passing on. Um, I wonder if you can comment here, this is back from, um, from, uh, from Fire by Water. You say our need for the steadying breaks of God's laws and the sacrifice of Christ is the bulwark against totalitarianism. Um, the God who revealed himself in the moral law and who condescended to be scourged and crucified by his creation, this God was a liberator. Mm -hmm. You say Auschwitz was possible actually because God had been pronounced dead and all the old thou shalts declared null and void. Um, Talk a little bit about your concern for um, Western society and and certainly in our country trying to hold on to things like human rights Mm -hmm. while pulling out the Judeo-Christian foundation
2: for those very rights. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, it it doesn't make sense to constantly make these claims about the dignity of the human person Mm -hmm. or the fundamental equality of, of, of people at some level if there is nothing special about who people are, yeah. if we're just the product of, you know, uh, evolutionary chance and, and, and various molecules, you know, struck together, blah, 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 and life emerged. Mm-hmm. If that's all we are, then why couldn't you? Why couldn't you countenance, um, you know, getting rid of the weak, you know? Sure. The, the disabled, you know, useless eaters. And we are getting there in sure. a weird way. In uh, uh, our discourse of, of autonomy and so forth has brought us back to um, thinking of certain lives as lives unworthy of life, to use the language of the Nazis with respect mm-hmm. to people with disabilities. Um, because the language of autonomy, the language of rights, the language of justice lacks that undergirding that of, uh, of uh, religious ideas or um, uh, values that made them legible. Sure, and, and without which they can, the, even rights talk, especially rights talk, can become really monstrous. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And there you talk about also the modern totalitarianisms, you know, seemingly sort of on the opposite sides of the political spectrum, fascism, communism. That that ultimately, what unites them is this this belief that uh, man is infinitely malleable, mm-hmm. um, versus the Christian claim that that who we are is fundamentally received, that we are a gift, and, and, and our identity is one that's received from God. Can you talk about that maybe in, in shifting to sort of um, the woke phenomenon and all of this, the, the, yeah. the playing with language and, and, and all of this, this idea of, of man just kind of being that we are whoever we want to be. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are the dangers in that, and how does that lead to the monstrosities of, of, that we've seen in totalitarianism?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's now threatening our grasp on, on, on reality mm-hmm. in a way that's really disturbing. I mean, um, the, the, the denial, for example, of, of not just what Genesis teaches about man and woman mm-hmm. um, as being immutable categories, but what genetics teaches us—that um, is leading to places where um, you see how the language has to become ever more fantastically removed from reality, mm. right? You have to come up with 170 expressions of gender identity mm-hmm. and possibilities, and um, you know, coming up with new pronouns and so forth. This is all um, uh, this 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 will to. Um, to overcome nature right sure. it's a will to overcome um, our bodies as we receive them from mm-hmm. nature and again it comes in the in the in the promise of liberation right mm-hmm. like it's a it, it, oh yeah my body is this obstacle right it's like it, it doesn't do what I want it to, to be to do it's not um, I'm not sexually who I want to be um, but what if with com- combining um, uh, alterations in language and surgical alterations of my body, I can really overcome that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an, an impulse behind all of it, maybe of I can over, if I can do that, I can really overcome death as well, mm. right? So, um, but um, the result is we're in a society in which we're being, the rest of us are being forced to mouth things that are just not true sure. uh, about man and woman.
1: Yeah. yeah, so again, yeah, the paradox that, that we propose as Christians then is, is being bound right, and the God who, who overcomes death by succumbing to it, right, yeah. um, and, and accepting, yeah, the, the limits that come from, uh, the students here have heard this, uh, the, the priest who taught us spirituality in seminary, he was, his question was, is it enough for you to be a creature? Which means you're not the creator, mm-hmm. which means your, your life is received, your life is a gift, um, and, it, and it has certain givens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that's the, that's the sort of the, that's the rebellion um, that's the reason that you wrote this book. This book with these twelve questions.
2: And in some ways, it's a very old rebellion. I am um, sure. I've, I've been contemplating writing a biography of the prophet Mani, mm. because he happens to be a, a compatriot of mine. He's that's a, right in Iran, or as he was a subject of the of the Persian Empire. Yeah. And um, you know, it's it's all Gnostic movements, including and especially Manichaeism, in late antiquity, shared this quality of of rebellion against a norm-governed cosmos, Mm. of a whole of which man is a legible part, um, which we find both in the Greco-Roman tradition, but also in in the Judeo-Christian tradition. um, And those can interface with each other. Um, But in in the aftermath of of the Alexandrian conquest of the Middle East, there rose these set of movements in the Middle East and Africa and North Africa, including in Iran in the form of Manichaeism that said, yes, the universe is norm governed and the norms are, are bad, they are oppressive. Mm-hmm. You are not, uh, what is natural is, 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 is an imposition on you when your truest self is merely, uh, it's very sort of divine sparks and spirit. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of life is to liberate the that divine spark within that is unfortunately tethered to this human body. Yeah. So Christianity does goes orthodox Christianity, historic Christianity goes so out of its way to emphasize the bodily nature of the Christ event. Yes. Um, uh, and, and 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 Our Lady plays such an important role in this, right? In in, in ensuring that Christianity does not kind of float into Gnosticism, yeah. which is a temptation. It's just a possibility.
1: It's, Yeah, it's just the heresy that keeps coming back. Yes. Right? Yeah,
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, What do you see, maybe one last question and we'll open up for for questions. What do you see specifically as, you know, we're here on a college campus, Catholic uh, student center, right across from a very secular university. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's my alma mater, but very, very secular. Um, What do you see as the role of the church, our role as Catholics in Kind of combating this, the tide of secularism, materialism, scientism,
2: wokeism, all of it. What, what's, what's our call? I will answer, I guess, for myself. Um, I mean, I I, 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 it may sound odd as someone who just wrote sort of the unbroken thread, but I've, I've increasingly come to conclude that while projects like that and and um, institutions like this play enormous value in Touching individual lives—that's mm-hmm. that's—it's part of the Great Commission. Sure. What, what a writer does, and what, it, in a much more manifest way, the church does in the world, um, that it won't change the cultural tide unless it's it's married to a kind of material program. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is, there is a tendency, I think, among in the church, which is absolutely correct to lament these things, you know, church attendance rates are falling, marriage rates are falling, um, uh, people aren't having children, and so on and so forth. And it's all true, but we don't ask enough, what is it about our kind of economic order Mm. that necessitates this outcome? Um, And even the cultural things that we talk about, wokeism, gender ideology, and so forth, I think the mistake is to treat them as these are kind of very aberrant, uh, 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 you know, these impositions from uh, importations from like European Mm -hmm. uh, traditions. So, yet they are partly that. But why is it that all of these ideologies mesh so perfectly with corporate power? Sure. Right. Why is it that? Um The trustees of Ivy universities and and Apple Corporation and Nike and others are perfectly happy to accommodate it
3: mm-hmm.
2: more than accommodate it you know to be at the at the celebrate, vanguard of it celebrate it yeah so that connection between and th- this is why I meant I had that caveat about Marx about what people profess to believe at the level of ideas and the the material substrate of society mm-hmm. is where I think is very important in other words, what I mean is like you can you know shout that like there are two sexes and not 57 and you can shout that you know actually Abraham Lincoln wasn't a horrid racist and so forth Mm -hmm. and it won't change the tide as long as these ideological developments help to legitimate a certain economic order Mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm interested in critiquing the kind of and exposing the material realities that lie behind these kind of cultural phenomena sure so taking it up as my uh, project going forward
1: and so Catholic social teaching there has, has super important a lot to say right? super and, important and,
2: and absolutely yeah
1: absolutely great well why don't we uh thank you so much pleasure why don't we uh thank take you, some God. questions <laughs> so we have uh, one microphone and uh two students who will be running it around so please raise your hand and be happy to take some questions
4: (laughs) hi uh, i wanted to ask about uh you growing up in iran and uh your experiences with islam of Was it just the uh, hypocrisy of the moral police that kept you away and your exposure to Western ideas that kept you away from Islam? Or was there something core to the the actual
2: belief system that kept you away from it? To untangle it all, one is I think that um, there are things about Islam that I now respect as a Catholic. Far more than I did when I was a secular, um, and it, it's very, very bizarre. But um, you know, there are elements of, for example, natural law, in which which Catholics and, and Muslims can easily see see eye to eye, even if there are differences at the margins. Um, but if you're growing up in a secularist milieu, as I was, um, you reject both sets of Ideas, right? And so you're um, you, you, um, you're sort of conditioned to think that all such ideas about like man and woman are backward and stupid and so forth, right? Um, that's one part of it. The other part of it, I think, you know, um, I've come to um, obtain a Catholic idiom for thinking about Islam through the Regensburg address by Pope Benedict mm-hmm. um, that. There is a difference um, in the faith, and there there is that side in Islam which is, it which is kind of f- irrational, and and th- th- doesn't satisfy, or at least didn't, in, to my fourteen year old mind, didn't, and still today I should say, doesn't satisfy the demands of reason, mm-hmm. um, and um, that that's a product of long developments, by the way, in in. In Islamic history in and Islam, in is, in Islamic thought, that why that turned out to be, um, because on the one hand, Islam could also tend toward extremes of rationalism, as well, in in, but ultimately a kind of very literalist mentality triumphed among the Islamic thinkers and in Islamic nations, and so um, that combination of things made me, but that makes it all you know, it makes it all sound so much more sophisticated than a f- fourteen-year-old doesn't. Think in these terms. What I think about is like, um, I think it's horrendous to broadcast, you know, executions and so forth, as as happened in the Islamic Republic. That 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 that's a much more visceral way to describe what it was about living in the Ayatollahs' Iran that, that turned me off from Islam.
3: Yeah. Um. Do you think about the millions of people in the Middle East who are like you were when you were a kid who have no knowledge of Christianity, and do you think that there is any horizon in which it might be possible that missionary activity could work in the Middle East, or has that always been impossible because of the penalties for apostasy and for... um, Conversion of a Muslim to Christianity.
2: That's a very good question. I'm um, I'm better versed with some nations in the Middle East than others. Um, so certainly Iran is a very complex situation because um, you the Catholic Church has a presence there and ministers to historic Christian communities, which are some of the oldest in the world, mm-hmm. um, and. In order to minister to them, it means having to play by the the rules of the Islamic Republic, which means, you know, no, no evangelization of non of, of of Muslims, um, and then you have this hunger among a lot of Iranians for for spirituality as as um, kind of official Islam gets discredited in their eyes. Um, they're not becoming all atheists, actually, because a lot of them have this, still this spiritual yearning. Um, but it's unfortunate because that, that's only, it's not the Catholic Church that fulfills that for complicated reasons, because the church is, um, like I said, has, has to, is, is, it has this responsibility for these uh, indigenous Iranian um, Christian communities, um, and so Assyrians, Armenians, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think my, my concern today, now as a convert, is just more, I guess, is just how do we preserve the existing historic Christian communities of the Middle East? You know, the, the share, of the, Ma- the Maronite share of the Le- Lebanese population mm-hmm. continues to decline. The um, um, share of Christians in, in the Nineveh Plain, yeah. I mean, sh- horrendous outcome one of the many horrendous outcomes of the Iraq war you know the num- the, the, the numbers going down to mm-hmm. dwindling and uh, you know I've met Archbishop Orda who is the uh, uh, cares for that community and you know it just his struggle is how to keep how to keep Christians there to live in this ancient homeland w- against all these pressures of wanting to Immigrate, understandably, because their neighbors you know, five years ago tried to massacre them on on masks. So that's, I think, from our point of view, I think from a Western kind of policy point of view, you know, leave the evangelization to the church and and, and however the the church might, however she might proceed, but from a policy point of view, just like, don't support uprisings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That will just mean the decimation of historic... Christian communities. Sure. That was a, yeah, it's a lesson well bitterly learned. Yeah.
0: If if there's no one else, um, uh, I have yeah, the you mentioned how conscience sort of saved you. So I was wondering. I know that there's an ongoing criticism about you know, the U.S. liberal system, and we we don't want to get into the whole conversation. But couldn't we argue that as long as religious freedom is guaranteed, you had that Bible next to you. And nothing, by the way you described your life, it doesn't sound like there needs to be a lot more than just this freedom. And then once that is there, regardless of how bad the culture around us is, there is something that rings true. So, I mean, it's sort of like, it's my question is like, is there, it sounds like there's maybe more hope than we're actually,
2: so, you know, that's a very good question. Here's what I would say is that, um, that historic Christianity has generally not said, well, let, let the culture go as it might, as long as, uh, you know, as long as there's like a, Bare minimum of freedom, which by the way, that bare minimum of freedom is also getting squeezed as as the church comes under attack, but mm-hmm. um, let the culture become you know a kind of vast bed of thorns and you know we'll see which gospel seed um, flower mm-hmm. and which all go to waste um, the the model which uh, I take especially from Cardinal Danielou, great French Jesuit, in the book, Prayer as a Political Problem, is, is of the church and civilization encompassing each other so as to protect the faith of ordinary people. Um, and what, that, what specific structural form that might take might change from age to age. But the bottom line is for, for Danielou is that um, he, he argues that Christianity is meant to be a mass religion and not a religion of a few spiritual elites who can withstand any difficulty, mm. mass pornographization or persecution or what have you, and a few that will get through it, that, it's a, that it is absolutely we have that in the church of heroic faith like that. But it also should be a, a faith of, you know, like kind of the ordinary Roman citizen who after the Constantinian com- conversion was like, okay, I don't understand everything in the creed, but like I'm now benefiting from efficacious sacraments, I have a humane order where you no longer expose babies to, unwanted babies to die outside the city walls and so on and so forth. Um, that, um, that this is kind of, this is a much more embedded, material, structural account of, let's say, of cultural Christianity. And it isn't that every person in there, their salvation is guaranteed. Every person has intense spiritual faith of a, of a saint. A lot of people are, you know, again, they're just ordinary Christians. And this was obviously a huge problem for, for, for Augustine, how to, how to deal with kind of the middling Christian. But I would say that historic Christianity has preferred a culture in which there can be at least middling Christians who benefit from, from sacraments mm-hmm. um, than then one in which only a kind of spiritual elite can thrive. And we say, oh, okay, well, you failed. Like we created this horrible civilization. Could you, get, could you have walked through that, that bed of thorns and kept your faith intact? Um, that is, is, there's almost something Pelagian in that vision of, like, I will do it myself. We, you know, Christianity is structural, it's communal, it's a mass religion. Our Lord is constantly in these scenes of ordinary joy, he's in weddings, he's in, he's in funerals. Um, so that says something about the mass nature of the religion. And if that's the case, and this is a very specific debate that I'm constantly engaged in with, with like, my friend, Rod Dreher and others, then sure. then as danielou says the constantinian conversion is not this like distortion of christianity rather it's it's the faith becoming more fully itself becoming more fully a mass religion and so that's i think what po- christian political actors should strive for again what that means in 2021 is different than we're, not, we're you know than than what it meant in in the 4th century yes that gentleman was <coughs> Yes, if
4: I, if I can just follow up a little bit on this question, um, and not to get into the whole common good yeah. issue and so on, but um, y- you've been quoted by, I think, Rod Dreyer about uh, saying that you don't want to turn this into a Catholic country. Is that a correct? Uh,
2: what I mean by that is, because I was quoted in the New York Times saying, what I mean by that is that that is a moot debate right now. Yeah. So what's <laughs> the, you know. Well,
4: the, right, yeah. right, in the short run, at least. Yeah. But in terms of, say, the long run, if you're looking forward into the future, your son Max's uh, uh, future, yeah. any children he might have, uh, do you think that it would be best to have the Catholic Church established if it was possible, and if not, doesn't that essentially isn't that essentially a liberal position that you are leaving the individuals to decide in a marketplace between the Catholic Church, the UCC, snake handlers? I mean, is, so, it, don't isn't the law a teacher? and shouldn't the, uh, would you like to see return in the long run to an established church?
2: Well, as you know, I mean, the, the famous letter from, from Pope Leo XIII to the, to the 19th century American bishops where he says, it's wonderful that you seem to be thriving over there in America, but it would be even better if, if the church had the support of your laws. Now, what, again, what the support of your laws mean is something that we can, we can parse. Does it mean support of the laws like at the absolute exclusion of every other church? Uh, who knows, you know, and what's what is the actual precise sense? But I think that's that's not a. If it's good enough for Pupila the Thirteenth, it's good enough for me. That position. Um, that said, I, I think again the reason I told the New York Times that, and I still believe it, is that it just it's not in the cards right now. Right. But what could be on the cards is at least to improve things at the natural level, so that the church can do its work. Right. So like. And that's why I'm, I'm much more interested in like, right now, you know, uh, overweening corporate power, family policy. Sure. Y- y- these are things we can do at the material level and the, the integralists are not, you will not find them being like, well, so how do we establish the Catholic Church? You know, that's, it, it seems, it does sound like LARPing and it would be, but that's not what we're doing. We're talking about, okay, how do we, you know, roll back corporate power so that, um, you know, small communities can thrive or what have you. It's much more material things. And so you improve the natural conditions in which at least the church can do its, carry out its salvific mission.
1: Do you, do you think on that point there are, are there points of, of contact or connection with the culture around us? So like I, Austin is very, so small communities, yeah. local. Okay, yeah. great. Well, there's something, you know, there there are points of contact there with Catholic social teaching or something like, um, you know, people's uh, people suddenly becoming more open to the church's p- teaching on, or at least I shouldn't say the church's people suddenly beginning to oppose contraception simply because it's not green mm-hmm. and say, okay, well, there's something there we can work with, right? Like that's part of what we're saying, right? It is that it's, it goes against natural law in the way that we're made. Um, that seems to me a way that there's, again, there's a point of contact there, that we're there are ways that there are trends in the culture around us that I think we can, maybe in in, in the sense of the Lord saying, being shrewd as serpents, right, and innocent as doves, that we can seize upon and say, okay, this this can work to our advantage mm-hmm. in creating a soil that is more, more um, amenable to
2: Christian life and in the church flourishing. Let me throw another example. Me too, right? Me too is in a way a recognition that the sexual revolution did not liberate women, yes, but mainly liberated uh, caddish men, yes, the Harvey Weinstein's of the world, right? And so as the culture, as a secular culture, begins to come to terms with, okay, that did not work, right? And there are cases are, where um, of legitimate criminality and or at least just sort of. Systematic harassment being tolerated, okay, and it's very interesting. For example, um, at various publications, you know, now in mean, the media, I've heard where it's like the the company is saying like two drinks at the at the company party, right, mm-hmm. or or things like that, um, or, or attempting to solve the problem caused by by a kind of absolutely punitive, me- where it's like you can yeah. still you, hook up as you please. But afterwards, the morning after, there might be an accusation, and your procedural rights might be abridged. But it is what it is because that's how. So the church is like, oh, may, you know, you're not happy yeah. with the world. <laughs> you know, there's this whole thing that we developed over two millennia about right. how men and women can relate in a humane way right. um, that doesn't require, after the fact, you know, punitive prosecutions in which yeah. the accused rights are are have to be abridged. In order to advance justice, but actually you can do it in a proactive way, or, or you know uh, there are modesty norms. There are there are reasons why men and women need sometimes separate spaces, and so on and so forth. Sure. to Control libido dominandi. Um, so that's just one more example of where there's a there's something in the culture where my where even seculars are becoming aware of of a crisis, and I think. Not just Catholics, but even more kind of traditional people can be like, "Yeah, that's why we did that. that it wasn't yeah. just because we were arbitrary and wanted. it's because if you you know let X,YZ appetite free, sure. it'll it'll cause harm, right it, It'll leave you unhappy.
1: It almost seems like there's there's like there's a fatigue almost of of that people are just eventually going to be exhausted with the sort of these things coming to their logical terminus and then, we have to be ready as 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 a church to step in and say, would you be open to another perspective here? Or <laughs> do, do you know why that happened? Like, yeah, that seems to be tremendously important. And there's the role of the questions, right? Yeah.
4: Hi, thank you for uh, the conversation. Um, I was curious about your comments regarding the relationship between certain ideologies and economic power and corporate power. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what you think is the kind of long-term uh, what's the end game there? Is it just like profit maximization on the part
5: of maybe large corporations? Or why would, say, Jeff Bezos, who, who you brought up, or Apple, which you also mentioned, why would they align with certain ideologies yeah. over others? Thank you.
2: Um, I think that, they, that, that um, kind of corporate wokeness fulfills several functions for, let's say, a ruling class that's composed of large holders of capital and generally, the professional managerial classes that service them. I am not a a, a Burnhamite in the sense that I think that capitalism has been abolished and we just now live under managers only. <laughs> like Jeff Bezos's very existence is a uh, a testament against a pure uh, Burnham type theory. But if that's the ruling class, what does it do? One is it deflects attention away from um, from much graver injustices, right? If I can get you to think about, obsess about a company that where you can, when you fill out your HR form, there are 57 different pronouns you can choose from or whatever, you are not thinking about the fact that the company employs, uh, you know, slave labor in Vietnam and, and China, right? So mm-hmm. you d- deflect, or, or you, you're, not, you're not paying attention to um, kind of disparities in pay that have con- continuously grown between the ordinary worker and a large company and the chief executive class. So instead, you're talking about this sort of linguistics and cultural stuff, um, and you're endlessly distracted. Another kind of deeper role that I think, again, I hate to use the word because it's somewhat become meaningless, but it, it does describe something. Another purpose that wokeism serves for our ruling classes, I think, is that in a certain way, the world that they want to create is a world in which um, you're purely a kind of homo economicus. You're just an economic unit, uh, free to move across borders, whether as labor, capital, uh, uh, service, or what ha- services or what have you. And they they view various things as hindrances to that: the nation, historical memory, um, or or the family, right? Because it binds people in various ways and it resists being totally economized Um, political community in in a real sense that that a political community in which various um, economic issues are still democratically contestable because it's a nation says no 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 we don't necessarily want xyz or we don't want you to exploit our resources in this way or that all of this is in the way so I think gender ideology and the kind of toppling of all the statues helps because if people don't have historical memories, if their public squares are denuded of historical memory, mm-hmm. in all its complexity, good and bad, Jefferson, Davis, Davis, and Lincoln, whatever, you have people who are just perfect consumer gig workers mm-hmm. and they, they, they don't have anything, that any attachments, and are, are, they are easier to, it makes them governable, it makes them disciplinable, more easy. Sure. Easier.
1: Yeah. And JP two saw that in Poland, right? <laughs> Yeah. You wipe out the poetry and history. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think we have. Well, on that point, I think uh, you brought up a good point Absolutely.
5: that the economic model underneath it is really the for the culture. How, particularly here, particularly here in the U.S. And, and probably globally, we've become very complicit in this, right? I mean, how many people here will give up Amazon tomorrow? Right, how many people really go and look at a product and see where it's made? Yeah. Do you buy things here in Austin? Right, do you buy things here? So given that fact, you know, because I'm a big believer in distributism as well, as a, a much better economic model, do you really believe that people will actually get there? I, I, I I do have one example where I think it can happen, and it's craft beer, right? So when I look 30 years ago, there were like three or four big major breweries, the beers were pretty much all the same. But if you go down to Hayes County, I was driving down to Jester King, and I passed a dozen microbreweries. Now these breweries are all viable entities, and the beer is obviously much better. But it takes a willingness of someone wanting to buy a beer for five dollars instead of a six pack for 350. Do you really think that's a possibility, and what do you think would have to happen culturally for some of that to take place?
2: Um, so I'm not a an expert on the beverage industry at all. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I never outgrew my like, college beer taste so that I basically drink Stella, you know? And the waterier, the better. You know? Like when I, when I see these fancy, thick beers, I, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so I've tended to argue against the idea that your consumer choices can change the balance of forces. I think for the most part, even your kind of dissident con- consumer choices, your craft beer, your, you know, or whether it's a choice of education, you know, classical Christian academy, so forth, they're kind of like, those are good choices, and I would personally make them. It means you have to be willing to forego some degree of convenience or some degree of marginal price difference, um, marginal price advantage, so fine, you know. But at the, but at the level of, of the system level, those are priced in, right? So it's like, you're still just making a consumer choice. Um, um, it's, it's it, you know, when people wanna shop, if conditions are such that it's more, it's cheaper to buy from Amazon, most people will, will buy from Amazon. And there will be like boutique people and, and types who will kind of make the dissident choice. But overall, it doesn't change the kind of social balance of forces. Um, but consumer groups can have a lot of power, and we used to have a much more um, robust kind of consumer advocacy system than I seem to remember now, where if I, if I, I don't know, like you, you you, buy something and it's not the one, the thing you wanted, then you go back to the store and you're, you have to like, they're like, no, 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 but you have to call this number, and it's, it routes you to Bangladesh. So how do you address that in consumer groups? Um, but for the most part, I think the, the way people have to be empowered is at the workplace and so um and that because that's um, that's the space in which we are subject to the greatest degree of private tyranny where in the kind of 18th century ideal in which these economic ideas were formulated it's like i meet you i have i have eggs and you have butter and we exchange but that's not what that's not the kind of exchange that happens post-industrial revolution You come to me, and you sign this dotted line, and I suddenly, I physically own you for eight hours of your day or more, and I can subject you to to nearly anything, and much of it is not democratically contestable. So to shift that, I think we uh, we need a kind of new labor movement in the country. Why is it, for example, that Amazon workers tend to reject the big labor when they move in, like in that Alabama warehouse? So that that labor movement has to do soul searching. Has it become too managerialized where it has no, no credibility with workers? Anyway, these are complex questions, but the, my, my point is that um, I tend to favor what Michael Lynn calls, calls countervailing power. The, the moment when corporations were most willing to serve the common good was this period between 1945 and roughly 1970 before the kind of aggressive neoliberalism took off. And that was a point where you had this kind of constant triangulation between labor, government, corporations, and then the church or churches as this kind of cultural overseers or, or uh, referees in a way mm-hmm. between the three sides. Yes. And you can, ha- you can have discussions in that way. But that requires, right now, it's like after decades of these kind of neoliberal policies, um, the imbalance in, in power between labor and capital is so vast that that's where I would put energies rather than consumer choice. Sure. But yeah, I mean, we should not buy from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> like What they do to their workers is horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: I think we, uh, we'll take one more and then we'll, we'll
2: end after that.
4: Go ahead. Father Jonathan uh, mentioned the words on the tower of like that ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But how can a college student operate within the system that rejects truth entirely?
3: Mm.
2: Great Good. question. Good to go. I, I don't know what, I really don't know how to answer it. I think, um, uh, you know, I, I recently got involved with something called the University of <laughs> Austin, um, which is a new university dedicated to countering the kind of mono thought that prevails on college campuses and so forth. and. I'll be honest. I joined very early on, telling them that I would be a critic, and I would be a critic of the mission of the university precisely because um, their emphasis is so much on on mere free speech and free inquiry. Those are important things in a university, to be clear. I don't. I don't think that. You know, I, I certainly don't want a censorious university in which um, um, free inquiry doesn't happen or free, but. To make them the highest good of the university mm-hmm. is to forget why it was that the free speech university of the sixties and seventies became the super PC universities of the eighties, nineties, and and the aughts. Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's a that's an institution building problem for for Catholics to renew Catholic education and to recenter it on the truth on the truth as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Other institutions as well that we have to build in a similar way. But in the meanwhile, I don't know what to say. Like, I, I do think you know as much as you can to like speak the truth in, in yeah. classrooms in which you're. It, it may not be well received, but have courage um, and support the the chaplaincy and Father John's work. And yeah, but it's tough. I mean, I wish I had a better answer. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to end on a grim note. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think we've you've outlined we've outlined a lot of it's it's
1: the uh, my sense is the there is a tiredness there is a this this uh, living by a lie is is ultimately not sustainable and, yeah. and it, it will fall apart at some point point. and we have to um, have kept the bridge of trust it's, if you want to use that expression like that that bridge open enough. Mm-hmm. By asking the questions, by posing, you know, could it be that there are some holes here yeah. that I think when it does fall apart, people have something to come home to, you know? Um, because I think your story shows that, I mean, this, the truth is what our hearts are made for, right? And and, and it, we will, it it will find us, right? If we are in the slightest bit open, mm-hmm. he will find us. Um, so that, that's the, the message of hope, I guess. Um so please God let it be so. So Reb, thank you so much for sharing your story with us.
4: First for you and the family. Thank you. thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.